It's time now for Alaska Outdoors Magazine on Talk 700 KBYR. Opinions and views expressed on Alaska Outdoors Magazine are not necessarily the opinions and views of staff and management of KBYR. Sit back, relax, and enjoy Alaska Outdoors Magazine. Welcome to Alaska Outdoors Magazine with host Evan Swenson. You're invited to come along with us as we bring you accurate and authentic answers for Alaskans by Alaskans. It's your KBYR window to Alaska's outdoors. If it's in the outdoors and in Alaska, it's right here on Alaska Outdoor Magazine. Now here's Evan Swenson, your host for Alaska Outdoor Magazine. If you have an interest in the outdoors, you want to be here until the top of the hour. This is a live show originating in Anchorage. Now let's talk. Let's talk with uh, Bill Fleming, REI's camping expert. Did you like that, Bill? <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know if I'd fancy myself an expert uh, since I don't get paid too much for it, but uh, I have a lot of fun for sure. So, Bill, how did a uh, how did a little boy from Copper Center get to the big city and the big <laughs> store of REI? <laughs> well, that's a good question. Um, well, after my parents moved into Anchorage when I was about seven, I. Uh, basically grew up and my dad was uh, pretty instrumental in getting me interested in the outdoors. He'd take me backpacking all the time and uh, put up with my whining and crying in the wintertime when I was trying to keep up with him on the skis. And, uh, and then I actually left Alaska, went to Colorado uh, for school and uh, decided I missed Alaska so much I had to come back. So, so how, long, how, how long have you been home then? Well, about a year and a half, and uh, had some job job offers to sell insurance and work for some car rental agencies, and decided I'd work part time at REI instead. They, they are they are the REI uh, outdoors uh, drew you instead. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, when you was out with your dad, uh, Bill, what did he teach you uh, about the outdoors? What did you learn more from your dad than anywhere else? Well, that's a, a good question because I'd have to say I, I probably know more about it now than I, I did then. And um, I don't think my dad ever took me out on real extreme middle-of-the-winter trips. I mean, he did a lot of uh, hunting trips uh, that I didn't get a chance to go on. But uh, I, I do remember uh, the importance of trying to stay warm. And uh, we'd always head back in as soon as I, you know, started complaining too much. Uh, but, uh, yeah, he'd always harp on, on trying to stay warm. And, of course, he was the one buying all my clothes, so I figured that he knew what he was doing. And uh, I still have all my fingers and toes, so he must have done something right. What, what's the difference in the gear that your dad furnished you when you was a boy and what you have now selling at REI? Well, you know, that's a good question because, uh, as a matter of fact, you can still get that old gear for a lot less money. And, quite frankly, it Functionally, it works just as well as the, the newfangled stuff. It With might, the fancy names on it, oh, huh? Sure, really? sure. Uh, well, the advantage to today's gear, the modern gear, of course, is typically it's much lighter, and it doesn't absorb nearly as much water. But the theory is uh, still the same, you know, layering your clothing so that uh, you're not relying on a single piece of clothing to keep you warm. Uh, in fact, I remember uh, I set my eyes on this uh, real fancy down coat and I saved and saved and saved and finally bought it and as it turned out it uh, I still have that and I hardly ever wear it because it's too warm and anytime you're out snowshoeing or cross-country skiing uh, boy you need to be able to take layers off as you warm up because it's pretty important that you try to avoid sweating too much because uh, what happens of course is you sweat and uh, that water evaporates and takes all the heat uh, from your body along with it 
So a nice big down parka just doesn't do you any good unless you're sitting still. And that, uh, that's a lot of layer to take off at once, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> that's right. It's, it's the only layer nothing. you got. <laughs> all or nothing. Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about camping, uh, winter camping. Uh, I, uh, I'm a little older than you, uh, and I can remember <laughs> some of the times back before we had probably propylene and those kind of oh, sure. new things even after that. Uh, but uh, winter camping used to be more of a chore than it is now, and or maybe we just have a different attitude towards it. Well, I think what passes for recreation nowadays is uh, maybe a little different than it was uh, 20, 30 years ago. Is that gear got better or the people got dumber? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a good question. Maybe a combination of both, I think. <laughs> Where do you, uh, where do you uh, go winter camping now? Where, where's a good place? If someone said, I want to go this weekend, do some winter camping close to Anchorage, where can they, where can they do oh, that? Oh, so if they wanted to do uh, an overnighter or yeah, some, something some, like that? Yeah, some camp, not just a day hike, oh, but sure. go do some camping. Well, my all-time favorite trip starts uh, up at Arctic Valley, and uh, you go down the uh, Ship Creek drainage and over the pass there, and you drop down into Indian. That's a very easy two-day trip. Uh, you can, uh, very, very strong skiers can do it in a day, but uh, I always sort of enjoyed turning it into an overnighter and you can do it on snowshoes real easily because not everybody knows how to ski and uh, it's you don't want to kind of a sad thing you don't want to limit yourself you know if you can't ski that doesn't mean you can't get out and uh, take a pair of snowshoes and it makes a great trip uh, it's gosh I guess it's about 20 miles or so I have to look in the book but uh uh, beautiful, beautiful hike in a, a valley. It's actually a better hike in the summertime or in the wintertime than it is in the summertime because in the summertime it's really marshy. Got some swamp in there to walk through. Yep. Now in the winter, uh, there's some places in there that I suspect that the wind could blow the trail out. You couldn't follow it though, isn't there? Well, the terrain is such that uh, as long as you have a map, you're really not going to get lost because mm -hmm. you're you're just cruising down a valley, and uh, there's no serious navigation that needs to be conducted. It's pretty much straightforward. Not very. It's uh, pretty difficult to get lost up there because you know where you're starting and where you're going to end up, and there's only one way to go essentially. There's a, is there a marked trail or is it? Are you just well one head of off from the parking <laughs> lot of Arcade Valley and hope you end up at Indian? No, actually, the nice thing about it is there's it's such a popular trail that typically uh, unless you go right after a big snowfall. Uh, there's an established trail. I know just recently, I think the, uh, the Mountain Club did a big trip, and I'm sure that trail's all beat out now. And there's uh, some absolutely beautiful vistas there that you can camp uh, in, uh, get up on a knoll about halfway through, and it's a very nice trip. What about water in the winter? Well, uh, your stove is your water, so uh, it's very important that you have a good stove um, and because basically you're melting snow. That's the water, water source. Uh, That's your water source. <laughs> yeah. You, you you think that there's a lot of water out there, but when you, all <laughs> of a sudden it comes to, uh, that came to mind. Oh sure. Uh, all of a sudden, what about water? Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, you hear about uh, the Russian climbers on Denali just recently, and they yes. timed it just right because uh, had they run out of fuel, they're not running out of fuel; they're running out of water when they run out of fuel. So uh, they they got lucky. That's interesting. So uh, they uh, they would have uh, been hurting physically. Oh yeah. Uh, the, the the fuel was not for heat. No, no, not at all. Not at yeah. all. It's uh, food and water, basically. Uh, have you been at altitude uh, camping at the, uh, like that? Uh, well, maybe uh, not the top of McKinley, but no. Uh, uh, well, actually, I have. I've uh, well, I went to Mexico uh, and did some of the higher volcanoes there, and they get up to around eighteen thousand feet. Uh, but 
nothing where uh, nothing like that and that's that's totally different uh it's like summer camping almost compared to what uh, what those folks were doing i can remember growing up as a boy in utah and hiking some of those peaks that were 13 14 000 feet high oh yeah and uh timpanogos uh, we all was higher than that king's peak if oh, you king's know peak. if yeah, you know sure. where king's peak is and mount baldy uh in the up in the winters uh, if you've been to colorado you're probably familiar with some of those uh, uh -huh. bill yeah but uh as I remember, uh, water was a problem in boiling it, you know, so uh, how about, what do you do in the winter when it's not only altitude but cold to boil water? Well, uh, typically at uh, those kinds of altitudes, you don't have to worry about uh, Giardia or some of the other uh, impurities in the water making you sick. You'll be satisfied just melting. Just, just get it water. It warm, huh? yeah. Yeah, yeah just get it warm water. Sure. We're going to take a break, but we'll be right back. And when we come back, we'll pause in the conversation for Ty Cunningham's Ty's Tracking Tip. We'll continue our visit with REI's camping expert, Bill Fleming. And later, we'll have Alaska Outdoors Subsistence and Sovereignty, Scenarios and Solutions by Joe Cavera of Anchorage from a letter to the editor. And we'll save time before we end the show for today's one last cast titled The Last Freedom Flight. Stay tuned to Alaska Outdoor Magazine, your KBYR window to Alaska Outdoors. There's an author masterminds book by T. Martin O'Neill, operational intelligence specialist, field operative, and true patriot, Into the Fire. Members of the elite Navy SEALs performed operations from counter-narcotics, counter-human trafficking, and even counter-piracy. These men placed their lives on the line daily as true humanitarians. Seen through the eyes of attached naval intelligence operatives, their stories can now be revealed. These operations, specific missions, even their love stories are recounted in Into the Fire. You'll find all of T. Martin's Navy SEALs novels with the publication's consultant's logo on the cover at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, and everywhere good books are sold. If you'd like to be an author mastermind's published author like T. Martin O'Neill, operational intelligence specialist, field operative, and true patriot, publication consultants can help. If you've written a book, if you're writing a book, or if you're thinking about writing a book, call for the free booklet, Bringing Your Book to Market. Call 349-2424. Into the Fire was just a dream until T. Martin ordered his own Bringing Your Book to Market. Publication consultants will send you the booklet free. Call 349-2424 for the free booklet, Bringing Your Book to Market. 349-2424. T. Martin O'Neill called, and now Into the Fire is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, and everywhere good books are sold. You're listening to Alaska Outdoor Magazine on 700 KBYR. Welcome back to your KBYR window to Alaska Outdoors, Alaska Outdoor Magazine. We're glad you decided to come along with us. Now it's time for Ty Cunningham's Tuesday's Ty's Tracking Tip. <laughs> Boy, that's a mouthful, Ty. Good afternoon. How are you? Evan? I'm better when I hear your sweet, melodious <laughs> voice, Ty. Well, good, good. I'm glad. We're going to do some uh, tracking today. You've got a tip for us. Well, I do indeed. Last week we discussed uh, what classification was, clear print and pattern, to find out what kind of animal you're after. Today I want to just talk a little bit about measurement and how we measure uh, to give us some numbers so that we can follow the animal. 
Um, you need a handy-dandy tape measure, of course, to get accurate readings. The first thing you want to look at is the length of the print itself. And you want to measure the length, not including the claws of the animal. So you'd go to the top of the pad to the back heel of the pad. Or if it's a hooved animal, just from top of the hoof to the back of the hoof. Now, after you get your length, then you go to width, and uh, just from side to side. Next thing you want to pick up is what the stride is. Now, the stride is on an, on an animal, you want to go toe-to-toe. And on a human, you want to go heel to heel. And the stride is most important when you're trying to follow an animal because uh, that tells you where the next step went to. After you get the stride length, then you go to straddle, which is the inside of the foot to the inside of the foot on opposite sides. So in other words, left foot to right foot, you would measure what that straddle is. Uh, then you go to what the trail width is, which is the outside of uh, the foot to the outside of the foot on opposite sides, right to left, or vice versa. And after you get your measurements, those are the basic five that you're looking for. There is one that's a little more advanced, which is pitch. Pitch is the angle that the foot is actually facing. A lot of uh, where most people are... Uh, understand is when a human walks you'll see pitch in the foot because the foot doesn't necessarily go straight forward it'll go out to an angle or it'll it'll angle in and that pitch is very important but that takes a little more experience but those five are clearly uh, critical to following any animal well how, how does that work why is that important well what happens is and, and I, I, tell you, I have to confess to you I'm, I'm 60 years old and I've been in the outdoors all my life and the only reason I had a tape measure was to measure the distance between the uh, antlers and to measure the length of the fish, but never the track. Well, that's good. I, well, I would measure the fish with it, too. It's an all-purpose tool. <laughs> However, in, uh, if you want to follow an animal and the sign on the ground isn't that visible, it is clearly important to know um, what the stride is. And after you learn to pick up pieces of sign, it's going to give you all this information. And once you have it, then if you have other sign intermingled with the sign of the animal you're following, you'll be able to pick that animal out as opposed to all the other animals. And a little, a little later on uh, when I come on, we'll be discussing more of the particulars on how to tell one particular animal from another, especially if uh, you're looking for a, a bigger rack <laughs> on an animal or maybe something bigger to eat. Um, than something smaller. Now, you can tell all that in, in an animal's track. So you take the width times the height less the depth divided by four, and that gives you the weight? <laughs> there you go. <laughs> but once you have... I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> no, what you're, what you're doing, and, and what I'm going to be doing later on, too, is we're going to be offering uh, to the public some uh, animal tracking courses where they can come see. It's difficult in five minutes. To sure. give a mental picture to uh, your listeners. and uh, But the five things they want to know is the length and width of uh, the track, the stride between tracks, the, the straddle, which is the distance on the inside of the foot from left to right, and then the trail width, which is outside to outside. And if they can write that down and have that, then uh, when they're out there tinkering with different signs, they can start practicing. And it does take a lot of practice 
of course, this is an art and science, just like uh, being a doctor or any of those type of professions. It takes a lot of time going out. But, you know, outdoorsmen like that. They like to get out there, and they like to be able to uh, look at something on the ground and tell them that, uh, you know, what, they're, what they see is uh, a big animal, something they can follow and take a look at with, with their eyes. Some so. the, some the, what are the challenges? One question, uh, you Ty. You're a deputy U.S. Marshal. That's correct. And so I understand why, on, when it comes to men, that you want to, to measure from the heel because mm-hmm. you're chasing bad guys and they're heels. Yeah. But now, when it comes to animals, you want to measure the toe. And I don't understand oh, the difference. Okay, that's a good question. What happens, there's two different types of, uh, this. when you talk about pattern classifications. Uh, for instance, I'll take the cat family, which I'm going to talk about next week, so I'll briefly do it now. Um, in the cat family, a, cat fa- a, a member of the cat family, and all in particular, lynx, bobcat, mountain lion, or even the... Uh, regular house cat, they have what's called a direct register. And that means when they step with their left foot, their left foot, when it leaves the ground, their rear leg steps into the same print that they just lifted their foot out of. And so what happens is it looks like they only have two legs. Because they're always stepping on their own track. Exactly. And so in that particular, you're going to have to go from toe-to-toe, because sometimes, depending on where they're moving, if they're moving, changing angles, they're not going to get that direct register. The foot will be off a little bit. And if you don't have a clear print, what you're going to think is you're going to think you're following a bigger print than you really are. And so what you do is instead of going heel-to-heel, because the heel might change, uh-huh. You go toe-to-toe because the toes are usually always the same. Hmm. It, it, and you got to get out and play with it because, like, next week I'm going to talk a little bit about the size, the general size of different cat family prints. And up here we're, dealing, we're mainly talking about lynx. Um, but, and then we're going to go into the dog family and we're going to go into, uh, you know, the deer family. We'll talk about all these different um, and rodents. And we'll go through the whole gamut each week, you know, as we as we do this, but it's clearly important that all these little pieces, eventually a person will come to a course and get out there and, you know, see it on the ground so they can put it to use, you know, for themselves. But uh, it's fun to come on and chat each week with you. This is, uh, it gets my mind rolling helping your uh, listeners to uh, love tracking the way I do. Well, we uh, like to have you here because each week when you come on, Ty, we know that you're still around to keep protecting us from them bad, from them heels that are out there. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> well, we appreciate it. Thank hey, you, you for calling. All right, we'll see you next week. You bet. That's a promise. Okay. All right, let's uh, continue our uh, talk with uh, Bill Fleming. Uh, Bill, as the REI's camping expert, well, you're the closest thing that we've got to that today. Anyway, even if you're not, Bill, because you're the only one here, so you can be what you want today. <laughs> uh, let's talk about uh, winter camping a little bit. So what are some of the pitfalls or some of the things that we should be looking for as far as winter camping is concerned? Well, I think a lot of people uh, underestimate the severity that winter can inflict on people and I think that it's important that people realize that there is an art and a science to staying warm in fact entire books have been written about the subject and uh, there's no mystery then oh no it's not a mystery at all Uh, anybody can do it it's uh, available to anybody who wants to get outside and get outdoors in the winter time 
And uh, but yeah, there's a if you take the time to educate yourself, uh, you can definitely stay warm. Bill, I'm getting a little bit too windy today. I took too long with the tie, and our time's moving on. We need to uh, pay the bills and have another commercial, uh, the last commercial that we'll have for today, I may add. And uh, we'll also stop uh, for Outlast Outdoors Subsistence and Sovereignty Scenarios and Solutions by Joe Guevara of Anchorage from a letter to the editor, and then we'll continue our visit with uh, Bill Fleming. And, of course, later on we'll have one last cast. Stay tuned to Alaska Outdoor Magazine, your KBYR window to Alaska Outdoors. There's an author masterminds book by Marianne Paul, America's Lady of Supernatural Thrillers, Raven's Cove. Welcome to Raven's Cove, Alaska, a tiny town nestled in a small hollow on the majestic Cook Inlet, a town familiar with storytelling. After all, Alaska abounds in rich legends. In Raven's Cove, though, legends have a tendency to come to life. You'll find all of Mary Ann's Iconoclast thriller books with the Publications Consultants logo on the cover at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, and everywhere good books are sold. If you'd like to be an author mastermind's published author like Mary Ann Paul, America's Lady of Supernatural Thrillers, Publication Consultants can help. If you've written a book, if you're writing a book, or if you're thinking about writing a book, call for the free booklet, Bringing Your Book to Market. Call 349-2424. Raven's Cove was just a dream until Mary Ann Paul ordered her own Bringing Your Book to Market. Publications Consultant will send you the booklet free. Call 349-2424 for the free booklet Bringing Your Book to Market. 349-2424. Mary Ann Paul called, and now Raven's Cove is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, and everywhere good books are sold. You're listening to Alaska Outdoor Magazine on 700 KBYR. Welcome back to your KBYR window to Alaska Outdoors, Alaska Outdoor Magazine. We're glad you decided to come along with us. All right. Now, uh, Bill uh, uh, Fleming is my guest today right. from REI. Uh-huh. And beginning of the show, he was talking about water is essential in the when you're hiking. Oh, you bet. And now you're reinforcing that even when we're not hiking. Yep. Uh, just sitting at your desk. Maybe you think, oh, I'm not doing anything. I'm just sitting in front of this computer. Boy, you need just, you know, you need a lot of water anyway. Well, now, the question I'm going to have, Bill, uh, Bill, when, 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 we, when we leave, is that you want us to drink water, and Bill wants us to drink water. And I know what happens to water when I'm in my office and wh how often I have to get up. Yeah, she's still But that's, have to that's a different deal when, it, you know, when it's 20 below in a tent. And I want to find out from Bill what do you do. I bet they have something to help you out on that one, too. <laughs> oh, maybe, maybe you ought to hang on, then, and we'll get that. <laughs> Bill, answer that question for Evan, would you, please? Well, let's see. <laughs> Well, yeah, as you would imagine, there's some uh, not-so-surprising side effects from drinking a lot of water, and it is interesting to see all the crossover information here that uh, what you're giving, Evan, and kind of what I'm saying. But, uh, yes, there are some uh, important things to remember. Uh, actually, just a real quick tip, uh, a lot of people, when they're lying in their sleeping bags and they've consumed lots and lots of water and uh, suddenly they get that feeling like they need to visit the outdoors, uh, it's very, very important, actually, that you don't ignore that and that you don't just lie in your sleeping bag. You really, oh, do, no. you do, really do need to take care of business because you'll find yourself uh, much, much warmer if you take care of the business mm -hmm. as soon as possible. And the reason for that is that your body is expending energy 
keeping that urine warm, <laughs> and that energy could actually be used to keep you keep, warm. Absolutely. <laughs> I absolutely. can't believe what we're hearing here, Vicki. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Bill, we'll, we'll go have a smoothie over this <laughs> one. <laughs> and we won't be in a tent at 10 below. <laughs> That's right. You got a bathroom on site, don't you? Yes, I do. <laughs> you guys have a great day. Okay, thanks a lot, Vicki. Bye-bye. We'll see you later. <laughs> I'm going to explore some more of that uh, with uh, Bill, but before we return to uh, REI's camping expert, Bill Fleming, today's guest, here's Alaska Outdoors Subsistence and Sovereignty Scenarios and Solutions by Joe Guevara of Anchorage from a letter to the editor. Uh, Joe writes, I neither hunt nor fish. All my meat comes from packages in a store. Yes, urbanites do have access to stores, but why should rural residents have first crack at fish and game? Why is it fair? I live in the city because I want to. Rural rural dwellers have the same choice of where they live. It's a matter of choice. Why should one bunch of people have preference over others? No, it's not fair. We were all supposedly created equal with equal rights. It's a matter of choice where one lives, city or rural, and all should have the same rights to dwell, hunt, fish, or whatever, whenever. Signed, Joe Guevara of Anchorage. Now let's continue our talk with the REI's expert, camping expert, winter camping expert, Bill Fleming. Uh, Bill, uh, that does present a problem in the tent. Uh, summer or winter, actually, but oh, sure. winter is more difficult than uh, at other times. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, and uh, I, I've definitely learned some, uh, some tips over the years that seem to work out pretty well. Uh, if you get pretty creative, uh, I guess we're still talking about the problem with drinking too much water, huh? Well, you, you want us to do that, so now you've got to solve it. You, you, you created the problem, Bill. Now you've got to help us solve it. All right. Well, let's, uh, let's say you're camping out in your tent, and uh, you're well hydrated, shall we say, and it's time to uh, lose some of that water, keep yourself warm. Uh, what I like to do is I'll take an extra water bottle with me, and I'll keep it inside the tent. So uh, if it's extremely cold outside, then you don't have to get out of your tent. You do have to be a little careful. Uh, but uh, it also helps to make sure that that water bottle is a different shape and a different size of, the, of your regular water bottles, and that will help out quite a bit, I think. <laughs> you you want to mark that bottle <laughs> very carefully. <laughs> That's right. Saying. That's okay. right. But now, what about, the, what about the ladies? Well, believe it or not, there are actually, uh, well, there are products that women can buy uh, which enable them to... Uh, aim pretty well believe it really? or not oh. yeah and they can direct that right into a bottle that requires that they kneel at least but mm -hmm. uh, it's better than uh, putting on all your clothes stepping outside the tent and of course uh, it realistically it is a little bit more of a problem for women than it is for men because they have much more exposed flesh when they yeah, right. take care of the business and well now how about the uh, how about the the bottle now that's going to freeze up and now you've got a frozen bottle of well, not necessarily, because now here's uh, something interesting, because you can recycle that waste, because when it comes out, it's actually quite warm, of course, and uh, if you I, I know what you're going to say. <laughs> <laughs> this is our warm water bottle that we're going to take to bed with. <laughs> well, if you can stomach it, if you can handle the thought of it, uh, you can uh, shove that down in, in the bottom of your sleeping bag. That's your foot warmer, right? That's right. <laughs> Uh, well, moving on. <laughs> Let's talk about shelters in the outdoors. Sure. Uh, tents, of course. Uh, is there a particular kind of tent that we should have for wintertime? Well, they are divided into categories, and the one that you would want, of course, would be a four-season tent, and typically a four-season uh, tent is typified by the number of pole crossings that it has. So, of course, the more pole crossings the tent has, 
then the more structural integrity the tent is going to have and the better able it'll be to stand up to storms and heavy snow loads which you might encounter on an extended trip and uh, so a lot of poles that have a lot of cross they cross over each other a lot typically it's going to be a lot stronger than some of the real light that for wind and snow you mean wind and snow uh -huh. sure sure hmm. so uh, it they're heavier tents but uh when the well in the winter time you end up carrying a lot of heavier equipment so uh, so it can stand up to the elements Bill, are you uh, are you one of these guys that likes to go out camping uh, minus the tent, go out and build a you know, <laughs> carve a cave in the side of the the snowbank, or well, can you, you do know, that? <laughs> well, I have before, but really only as a novelty. That's uh, the way I consider that. That's a very important survival skill to have. But um, the problem with digging a snow cave is that you end up exerting a lot of energy and you sweat quite a bit. And uh, in order to sweep the debris out from the floor as you're digging out this cave requires you a lot of times to use your arms to sweep it around and you end up packing your gloves and your coats around the wrist with snow and it melts and then it gets you wet. Uh, it's actually quite a bit easier to stomp out a, a snow pad. Just stomp out the snow with your snowshoes or your boots and what happens is uh, you break those snow crystals apart. It actually releases just a tiny, tiny bit of energy and then it melts just on a microscopic scale and then you leave it alone and it all freezes back together and then you then it's hard yeah, and yeah then it's hard yeah. then you have a nice platform for your tent it'll always mm -hmm. be level and then what you can do of course is uh, take snow and pile it up around the sides and you have like a windbreak so um, you can put your tent right on that platform and have some nice walls and you dig out a nice kitchen and it's quite enjoyable what do you put uh, down uh, underneath the tent are on top of the inside of the tent to keep it clean or dry or well, that that's, that's a good question because uh, you can have the warmest sleeping bag in the world and if you don't have the right sleeping pads you're still going to be miserably cold and uh, what most people will use inside of a tent is probably a closed cell foam sort of the old uh, blue camping foam standbys that uh, every How about thermarest thermarests are a very good idea that's a good one huh and okay. most people will use those in conjunction with each other They'll have a closed cell foam on the bottom, and then they'll put that thermarest on top. So that closed cell foam will insulate you from the ground, and then that thermarest will actually provide a little bit of warmth it's acts as an insulation barrier. So when you're on top of that, typically that's uh, that's enough to keep you from getting warm through the bottom of your sleeping system. So now, should you put a, a like a space blanket underneath your tent or on top of the floor of the tent? Well, that's not really going to do much good. Um, typically, those tent tarps yeah, the ground cloths uh, usually you use those pr to protect the the bottom of the tent they're not really going to add any warmth or or any protection per se that's th that's for the tent only not for the person in it that's yeah that's right and you leave that behind and save a little little bit of weight how about an emergency shelter H how do you build one of those well um that definitely that's something that you'd want to experiment with uh, a lot of people they're before they actually go out and build one, the first thing that comes to mind is an igloo. And I can, I can tell you, Evan, that uh, building an igloo is a labor-intensive process. <laughs> and, boy, yeah. <laughs> that'll, that'll keep you busy till rescue comes. Oh, huh? that's right. Yeah, for sure, for sure. In the meantime, you'll want to uh, stay elsewhere because it'll take a while, depending on what size that you build. But most people are going to, uh, well, in a true survival situation, you don't have to get real fancy. It can be as simple as what they call a ranger trench. And uh, you take your shovel and you basically dig a trench in the snow uh, deep enough for you to uh, lie in. And then uh, you can take your pack or 
Actually, uh, I should amend what I said before. You should always have a space blanket with you uh, in the out-of-doors because uh, they are very practical. Uh, of course, a lot of them have grommets, and you can string it up like a tarp, and you can uh, use it as a roof over this ranger trench, and mm -hmm. it only takes just a few minutes to dig such a trench, and then you'll have uh, basically shelter that way. Um, and, of course, you can also use the space blanket as exactly that, a space blanket. Uh, or if you have more time, you can go ahead and, and begin digging into the side of a big snowbank. You want to make sure that there's enough snow there that uh, you w won't collapse it as you, as you hollow out the roof. But uh, typically what you do is you start, the, uh, you start the entrance and you begin to dig up. So you're digging up and clearing out the snow as you go in. And then you, uh, you'd be surprised. You actually are supposed to dig the roof out to where it's just maybe six inches from the outside so when you're inside and it's bright outside you should see sunlight filter oh you should have some light it won't, yeah. it won't be a dark oh, yeah, yeah the mm -hmm. problem is of course if if uh, you're too down if you're too deep you're not getting any ventilation there it's very important uh -huh. that you poke holes through the the ceiling that you're getting some airflow through there because uh well for one a pack a couple of people inside a real uh, closed uh snow sort of a shelter like that, then there's lots of perspiration and, and it becomes very humid and it's a good idea to get some uh, air through in the, through there. It is possible to suffocate in a, really? in a snow cave. Sure, mm. if you're deep enough. If mm. you're deep enough and in a storm uh, you get packed and you're too deep as it is, um, you you can invite... Yeah, it's a very rare thing. I, I've only heard of it happening once, but I, I know that it's something that people are, are cautioned against. Well, you'd only do it once. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. What's what's the best way? To, what's the best way to keep to keep warm? Uh, like at an emergency, is it to get in a, at a shelter like that and bundle up close together, or is it to, you know, do some exercise or? Well, of course, that's going to depend on the situation. Uh, I guess in an emergency, you want shelter uh, uh, as soon as you can. A lot of people will think, "Oh, build a fire," but a lot of times. Uh, in Alaska, of course, it's very easy to be above tree line in an emergency. There won't uh, be any uh, source of fire like that. But shelter is definitely very, very important because, of course, inside a snow uh, shelter, it's going to be much, much warmer than on the outside. So snow shelters, that is one advantage of a snow shelter. They're much, much warmer than a tent. Oh, really? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I guess they would be, yeah. Sure. Hmm. Uh, any, uh, we've got one minute, uh, Bill. Is there any uh, tip that you could leave us with that uh, that when you when people <laughs> come over to REI, you say this above all, dude, or something? <laughs> well, let's see. Um, I guess I don't have any one overriding rule, but I do have a little sourdough tip. I don't know if it's actually a sourdough tip or not, because uh, the guy that told me how to do it wasn't necessarily a sourdough. But uh, you consume a lot of fuel by melting water, and what you can do the before you go to bed is uh, you melt a big pot of snow until it's water and you bury it in the snow. And uh, of course you have to remember where you buried it. And in the morning when you wake up uh, and you dig it out, it doesn't matter how cold it was during the night, it could have been 10 below, 20 below, but uh, with that pot insulated by the snow, it'll still be liquid in the morning. It'll so you still don't, be water. That's right. Is that that's right? right? So you won't have to necessarily uh, fire up the stove and melt lots of, uh, lots of snow. 
uh, you'll have a pot of water in the morning. That's a good tip, and that was worth the, you, you being here just to get that <laughs> tip, Bill. Well, thank you for uh, being our guest today well, and sharing your knowledge with us. We'll uh, ask you and invite you to come back another time. And please do. All right. Well, Evan, thank you for yeah. uh, having me on the show. Yeah. Thank you, Bill. Mm -hmm. And now, before we close the show, there's just time for one last cast. Today's one last cast is titled The Last Freedom Flight. My son Jesse's first sheep hunt took place on Mount Gordon, among other snow-capped peaks of the Wrangells. It was in the days before the National Park Service entered the scene and stopped hunters from hunting and flyers from landing. It was during the time when Alaska was for Alaskans, when wilderness meant something entirely different than the definition and restrictions given and forced upon us by those in Washington and regulated by the superintendent of the Wrangell St. Elias National Park. Those were the days never to be forgotten, days when Alaskans were in charge of Alaska, when government regulation was an invitation to enjoy the freedom of flight, fishing, and the farness of the real Alaska. Then came the keep-out regulations and restrictions rent upon us by the big brother and his park ranger bullies. We flew our post-World War II Stenson Model 108-3 from its tie-down at the Anchorage International Airport to our hunting area across from Gold Hill, circling low and carefully looking over the surface of Nebesna Glacier and finding a long, flat area free of holes and cracks in the ice I pointed the plane's nose into the wind and landed uphill on the glacier's back. Short field procedures were executed. Flaps were quickly brought up on touchdown and brakes were applied hard, bringing the 1948 vintage airplane to a safe stop. I probably said something like this, cheated death again, as the old airplane turned to where we intended to tie it down and leave it while we went chasing sheep around Mount Gordon. We used 18-inch mountaineering ice screws for anchors to hold our bird on the glacier in the event the wind decided it didn't like 857 Charlie parked on top of Nebesna. We spent the first night in our tent on glacial remain sand hills off the side of Nebesna. Along about morning, the wind decided to test our ice screw anchors and tie-down ropes as well as our tent's uh, wind-shedding ability. Tent ice screws and tie-down ropes passed the test and beat the wind. Before we left the glacier for the doll's bedroom, we gave the ice screws another couple of turns into the million-year-old ice and checked our tie-down knots. For the next five days, we roamed around Mount Gordon, camping in a different spot each night. Like all sheep hunts I've ever been on, we had our share of rain, snow, and blow. Towards the end of the week, Jesse's creation of Jonathan Browning filled the measure of its creation as Jesse joined the ranks of the few who have taken a pure white sheep at the top of the world. As we began our downhill climb to our wing transportation back to civilization, we could see the red and white Stenson parked on the spine of Nebesna Glacier far below. The mammoth size of Nebesna dwarfed our little flying machine resting on the river of ice where we had left it days before. As we descended the mountain, the, the plane's size grew larger as we lost our perspective of the hugeness of Nebesna. When we reached the airplane, we discovered our ice crews lying on top of the ice and the tie-down ropes listing limp under the wings. We had not counted on the glacier melting as fast as it did, over 18 inches in just six days. Had the wicked wind returned before we did, our flying machine would have been nothing but a pile of twisted aluminum and airplane fabric in one of the crevasses on down the glacier. As it were, a kind breeze began to blow from down below, giving us the advantage of a downhill and to-the-wind takeoff. Clearing the glacier, we climbed to altitude in minutes traced the route we had taken days to walk and to climb. Little did we know as we flew under the tops of Wrangell and Sanford that this would be our last freedom flight in this area of Alaska's wilderness. 
with the passing of hunting and flying as we knew it, we also suffer the loss of our own individuality. When once we were once against the elements, we are now grouped with the masses, restricted to a TV-like experience with the wilderness, while the National Park, holds, Park Service holds the land in trust for who knows what, except the continuation of the regulators and their freedom to the real Alaska, which is only a memory in the minds of those who were here when the land beckoned and free men could answer and take their sons to the tops of the mountains to stock sheep. My gratitude goes to those who have made this show possible, REI's camping expert Bill Fleming for being our guest, our engineer Philip Cardenas, and special thanks to you, our loyal listener. Without you, this show would not be possible. Thanks for listening. When you go outdoors, take a young person with you and teach them by your example what it means to be a sportsman. Behind the wheel or in the boat, on the road or in the field, take the high trail. Be a courteous driver, recreate within the law, and please don't litter. Goodbye and good luck. May God bless you in the land of the midnight sun, and may your days be happy and long in Alaska's outdoors. Wednesday, as always, will bring you accurate and authentic answers for Alaskans by Alaskans. In the meantime, keep in touch.